This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 52. This is Writing Excuses, economy of phrase, being the concentrated concatenation of complex thoughts in just a very few words, which must fit in a very, very small box, with Patrick Rothfuss. Fifteen or so minutes long, give or take. Because you may or may not be in a hurry. And we are... (laughs) Not that smart. (laughs) I'm... No longer allowed to write the titles for episodes. <laughs> I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. And I'm Pat, in a small box. <laughs> All right. We, we recorded... I'm just going to give you the backstory yeah. on this episode. We good. recorded uh, uh, Pros and Cons uh, with Pat... And at the end of the episode, he turned to me and said, I really wanted to talk with you about writing comics and fitting all of those ideas into, into tiny panels. Um, and and as, we, as we discussed this, we realized that that level of, that level of compression, um, of compression of information is something that all of us have done. Uh, Mary Robinette, you've done it writing a children's uh, book? A picture book, uh, radio, and, and also flash fiction. Flash fiction, Dan. Um, I've written three audiobooks at this point intended as audio dramas. Yep. And uh, Patrick, you wrote uh, as one of the, was it Rick and Morty? Yeah, the Rick and Morty D&D crossover comic, uh, which was an interesting exercise in editorial control for me, uh, and two IPs that I did not control, but also writing, you know, only getting 21, 20 pages, 20, 20 pages and only so many words in a box. Um, and I'm also doing a comic, another comic with Nate Taylor. So like how, you know, brevity is the soul of wit and that is not necessarily my jam. Um, my very first convention panel was called Crispy Crunchy Writing, and we were asked to introduce ourselves. And uh, I was I was last in line, and one of the guys on the panel was uh, Jerry Purnell. Um, we got well, you know, he, and they introduced themselves, and I said, you know, my name's Howard Taylor, and I'm I'm on this panel because I write comics, and I have to fit all the words in the little bubbles, and. Uh, Jerry pounded on the table and said, Son, you're the only one here who's qualified to speak. I get paid by the word. (laughs) Which is one of the best moments of my life. Um, But in looking at what I have to do in order to, in order to fit everything in the dialogue bubbles, um, we've had discussions about revision. We've had discussions about editing. Um, There are Two key pieces for me that I that I want to lead with and, and get your ideas on. The first is that uh, when I'm writing for comics, I am allowing the the art. I am allowing uh, I'm allowing the sequential illustrations to do a whole bunch of the heavy lifting. Uh, whether it's you know facial expression on a character that's going to convey emotion. 
or background that's going to tell me, you know, whether or not the room's on fire. Um, uh, that's the first piece. And, and the second piece is uh, arguably the harder part, which is the, which is the pith, which is the compression. Um, and yeah, for my own part, I found that some of my most interesting experiences have come when I was writing for a different artist. Ooh. And, and I would write some descriptions and the panels came back and I realized that uh, 75% of the dialogue that I delivered was already now being told in the story. And so I pulled all of those words out and put in new dialogue and had way more story to work with. Mm. It's a fascinating experience. With uh, Rick and Morty. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Rick and Morty was interesting. Uh, and, and I should say, while I have, I, I was forced to like deal with short dialogue, short spaces, um, uh, Jim Zub, who helped me script, you know, we were, were a writing team there. Uh, he and a couple of different interviews, you can find them online, has gotten very salty because Jim has written a bunch of stuff. He's an absolute consummate professional, gets the job done. And I am Patrick Rothfuss, <laughs> who has kind of never done a comic before in a professional way. But, and he tells the story of like, he's written for the Avengers. And at one point he said that he had, he was, he was, I, you know, I write for this little comic called the Avengers. And one of the issues, I had to write off 24 different characters in 20 pages. Huh. And he goes, cause it's a 20 page comic. Comics are 20 pages. He goes, and then I work on this comic with Patrick Rothfuss. And, <laughs> and he goes, <laughs> He goes, I had to argue. I begged them for another page. So I had 21 pages to write off these 24. He goes, Rothfuss turns in his third script, and here we are with 25 pages <laughs> approved by the editor. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't necessarily have the knee on my neck that would have taught me as much as it could have. But also, I really am thankful for the editor because one of the things you learn with the compression is that sometimes to tell the story you want to tell, and I'm curious about your experience here because, again, with this sequential medium, you can't, you can't just add another panel. And that's like one of the first lessons I learned working with Nate Taylor because we did a comic together years ago for the Numenera game, you know, to introduce the character in the world. And he says, okay, here's the thing. We're going to do a script and then we're going to, I'm going to do some blue lines and I'm going to lay things out. I'm going to do some panels and you're going to approve these. And th then we're done because you can't just stick something in. You can't just add another panel. And I'm like, oh no, I get it. I get it. <laughs> and then the realization uh, sinks in. Um, I, a bit of bit of fun backstory. Jim Zub and I are good friends. Ah. And uh, when when Zub said, "So I'm working on Rick and Morty uh, and D and D with Patrick Rothfuss," I may have snirked so hard I hurt myself. <laughs> Because this conflict that you have described is one that I saw coming from a mile away. Because Jim, I, 
I study Jim's scripts to try and find out how to write for other uh, other artists. Jim's got a Patreon where you can look at the the scripts that he does, which is a brilliant resource. And I struggle all the time with being with being too wordy. Um, what I've found is that um, sometimes we talk about killing our darlings. Mm-hmm. I will turn a phrase. I've just had to do this today. I will turn a phrase and love it and think it is key to the story. And then I take a step back and realize I need that panel for a reaction shot. I need that panel for a character to say nothing but to react to someone else's dialogue, which means that line's got to go because I can't make the book longer. Uh, You know, I've got a a hard page count, so I have to remove something. Um, The boneyard is full of of that kind of thing. Uh, I'm interested to know how these sorts of concerns play out in, uh, in, in children's books. So it was, it's very similar for me um, that one of the things that you're looking at, which uh, is where the, where the page turn is. Yeah. Um, because you want them to, you, you, you want to make a promise so that they want to turn that page. Um, and you want to make sure that that hits in the right spot. So then, when you're trying to get in more information, and like I've written, I've written a science fiction, a hard science fiction children's book, which is set on the moon, and which means that I have to explain lunar gravity to small children while still moving a plot forward. And I have a specific page number, and I still need to make all of the things hit at the right point. So it was very much about trying to compress and and having things do double duty mm-hmm. um, and making sure that anything that I put on the page was unambiguous so that I didn't have to have a second phrase to explain it, making sure that those pieces of language were really, really clear. Yeah, that was the same thing I was going to say. My uh, audio dramas that I wrote were hard science fiction middle grade. Uh, I love them, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. Second one comes out. Uh, we'll actually have already been out by the time this airs, but... Um, having to explain how zero gravity and microgravity works in a fast-paced children's story means that it does have to do double duty like you're talking about. You can't just sit there and explain, you know, cryogenics or zero gravity or the Kuiper belt or any other thing. And so my solution was, well, this is going to be fun. If, if If I'm explaining zero gravity while my main character is screwing around with it, and doing some mean thing to his brothers, then I then it's still exciting while also explaining what I need. And so that making sure that it's always doing extra multiple things is something we're all supposed to be doing anyway. <laughs> but I feel like I learned that lesson even harder when I had to reduce everything down. I want to take a quick break. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, for a book of the week, which is not a book of the week. And I want to I wanna break for it before we've moved too far away from his name. Uh, Jimzub.com. Uh, 
he's written, he's got some tutorials on the sidebar, sidebar of his website. Comic writing, number one, brainstorming, two, pacing, page planning, scripting, dialogue, action, and analysis. It's seven parts. We'll link to it in the liner notes. Uh, these are a little older, but I would encourage you to go out and read this. Yes, it sounds a little bit like homework, but there are going to be pages from his comics in there, so it's also fun to read. Um, uh, I, I, can't, I can't emphasize strongly enough uh, the importance of reading the things that the experts decide to write about this subject. Uh, I, I still learn from Jim when we talk about these things. Uh, so that's uh, jimzub.com, sidebar uh, on comic writing. Can I also just throw out, since we have talked about comics, reading, and I wouldn't be surprised if you guys have already recommended it over the years, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Now, I imagine people who work in comics could have different feelings about it. I read it before I really read comics, and it changed the way that I thought about a lot of elements of storytelling. Um, just pacing and like where action happens, it was an absolute narrative game changer for me in sort of developing my writing philosophy. Yeah, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Uh, that is also an excellent book of the week, and we'll we'll link that too. Um, One thing that I want to flag that that is allowing for this this compression with words when we're looking at. Uh, comic books or audio is that there is another medium that is carrying part of the story, yeah. whether that is the the voice of the actor or the the visuals on the page, and that's part of what you're looking for when you're when you're trying to to trim is everything where that other medium is carrying the story. Um, this is a thing that you you see a lot in puppet theater where the characters will. In, a, in an early draft, the people will feel the urge to have the characters, you, you'll, you'll have the characters say something, and then you get it up on its feet on the stage and the puppets are moving. And you're like, the characters doesn't need to say that. They're expressing it with their body. And so you cut the line mm -hmm. because that physicality does it the job more for you. So what I find when I'm working in one of these other mediums is that it it forces me to really consider what pieces are important Um and then when I return to prose, with straight prose, where I'm just dealing with words on the page, a lot of that economy of language comes back with me uh, and allows me, even though I've, this is very long-winded description, but it allows me to be more focused in what I'm doing because I've learned to be unambiguous, because I've learned which pieces you actually have to have. It's difficult, perhaps, to to understand the importance of audio as as an additional medium without an example, my favorite is, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you did that. Those are three completely mm -hmm. different sentences, mm -hmm. all exactly the same length, <laughs> all exactly the same length. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing. Now, when you're, when you're writing for comics, when you're writing for prose, often you will have to put text emphasis in in order to ensure that those things uh, those things are there. What you mentioned uh, there, I realize now, actually, this is true of some of the script notes I've been giving for um, the King Killer TV show, which, when this airs, is will probably be dead. Um, uh, but a lot of times I'm like, hey, this isn't really perfectly clear, or this, or this. And they would say, you know, 
we're going to worry about that after we have an actor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, and which again is such an alien concept to me. I've gotten to thinking about picture books because like I'm going to show a picture and there'll be a, a picture and text. And then it's like comics is sequential art, depending on how you want to argue that, but like a series of picture and text. And then they're like, well, no, the actor will sell this. You don't need to explain the emotional beats. You will see the actor's face. You will do. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, God. And it's so hard for me to trust. But also it's really hard for me to give up control. (laughs) (laughs) And that is is one of the things that I love about writing for an actor. Like I I wrote um, for – Defense Grid 2. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then also um, for Brass Tactics. And, and what I had to do was, because it's, it's a game, I had to create a spreadsheet of lines of dialogue that could be delivered by the AI at a point, theoretically, in, in, a, in a way that follows narratively. But, you know, I had, to, I had to write lines that actually did have some ambiguity to them, but that gave, that the actor could make... Uh, give a consistency to. And one of the things that the first time I worked with them, they, they wanted me to, uh, to, to make the lines, in my mind, a little more purple. Um, and, and we had this conversation about, you know, trust the actor. And when they get into the booth and the actors get in there, the lines play because I've given them space. Mm-hmm. I've given them space to bring this character in. Yeah, I remember talking to a uh, video game writer at Gen Con, and she was telling me that uh, she had to write a bunch of different dialogue options that had specifically different emotions. Mm -hmm. Here's the happy response, the angry response, and all of those. And she realized that she could cover all five of them with just the word, hey. Yep. And just have them deliver it differently. And Mm -hmm. she convinced them to pay her separately for all five instances of the word, hey. Yep. Because the actor was going to sell them. That's great. I've done the same thing, not, not with, 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 with hey, but with what? Oh, yeah. That's another good one. <laughs> when I wrote for the Numenera game, um, similarly, like, you only have, you have a very small box. And uh, Numenera was amazing, in my opinion, because um, they were doing a return to this older style of game where you had legitimate narrative options which could impact your relationships in the game, like the old Planescape. This is sort of the spiritual successor to Planescape. Or even some of the old Fallout games or the more character-driven RPGs as they used to exist um, before graphics sort of ate up all the, it breathed up all the air in the room. Um, And it was like, they, they, they honestly went crazy. You could have nine different dialogue options to choose from and go in any direction. They really leaned into it. But thinking of that sort of economy where you want it to be clear to the player, like the the active person actively engaging in the narrative, you know, and there it was without an actor, but you're still on the screen, you know, and you're, you're sort of, you are the character. You're the character that's speaking in in this theory. Um, you know how to do that in God, twelve words. Twelve words is a lot. 
You know, if yeah. you're going to do five different dialogue, it's like you've, you've overfilled the box. You got to have a little scroll bar. That's not elegant. So, yeah, uh, it's uh, this is a remarkably transferable and universally useful skill. Yeah. One of my least favorite uh, um, f- uh, forms within comics is the the fact that the fontography for comics is sans serif, all caps. Mm. There's a huge amount of information that is lost yeah. when your text is like that. And I've found that the, the tools, and, and I'm saying this for people who specifically want to write comics, uh, the tools that I use to work around this, uh, first and foremost, um, you know the whole hit the space bar twice after the period? Yeah. Instead of hitting the space bar twice after the period, hit the return key a few times and treat each sentence as its own dialogue bubble. Mm. Mm. Um, because the period can get lost and you will find yourself reading a wall of all caps comic text and you haven't read it correctly. And if you lose the reader in that way, you've got a problem. Um, the second uh, the second is uh, use bold and italics and Mm-hmm. These things, they yeah. have to be there. I hate the use of bold in comics. I'm sorry. I hate <laughs> the use. I mean, it, it's, it, this would be fine if it was William Shatner reading this in my head all the time. But it's a convention in comics that started like way back. Like, mm-hmm. These days, I, and, and I really want to hear how you feel. But I feel like we have the narrative technology these days. Not even... Like, to script, like, we're better storytellers now. We, but, and, like, Zub really leaned into it. And, honestly, the editors wanted it. They're like, you're doing a comic. And and so he would always bold these words, and I would kind of, in my editorial pass, I'd go through and unbold as many as I thought I could yeah, get away with. That's not going to stick. <laughs> <laughs> I got away with a few. But, like, if it's a well-written sentence... You don't need nearly as much of that, do you? I mean, well, and that's I. That is one of the tools that I use. If I find, wow, I've got a bold half a dozen words in here in order to get the emphasis in the right place. It's time to rewrite the sentence. Yeah, it's time to rewrite the sentence. Yeah, we are out of time. Um, so ironic that we could talk about economy of phrase being the concentrated. I'm not going to do that. Again. <laughs> uh, that we could talk about economy of phrase. I just keep going and going and going. Um, homework. Take a scene that you have written of prose, remove all of the blocking, just space out the dialogue, draw stick figures and smiley faces, and attempt to convey with a different medium all of the things that you were conveying with those other words. That's a great one. Awesome. Mm -hmm. That's really great. This has been writing excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write, but short. This episode of Writing Excuses was recorded by Bert Grimm, mastered by Alex Jackson, with your hosts Dan Wells, Howard Taylor, Mary Robinette Koal, and special guest Patrick Rothfuss. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. 
They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 